Welcome to the New Chemist Podcast. Bienvenidos al podcast del Nuevo Químico. Carlos Irza, testo podcast to New Chemist. Welcome by the podcast van the New Chemist. Bienvenue sur le podcast du Nouveau Chimiste. Bem-vindo ao podcast do Novo Químico. Welcome to the New Chemist Podcast. Work hard. Be value-driven. You can do it. You can grow and learn it. You can be the difference you and your community needs. Don't give up. We are here rooting and cheering for you. Don't give up. Travaillez dur. Soyez axés sur la valeur. Tu peux le faire. Vous pouvez grandir et l'apprendre. Vous pouvez être la différence dont vous et votre communauté avez besoin. N'abandonnez pas. Nous sommes ici pour vous encourager et vous encourager. N'abandonnez pas. Trabalhar duro. Seja orientado por valores. Você consegue. Você pode crescer e aprender. Você pode ser a diferença que você e sua comunidade precisam. Não desista. Estamos aqui torcendo e torcendo por você. Não desista. Duepse esclirá. Na odigita estinaxia. Boris na tocanis. Μπορείτε να μεγαλώσετε και να το μάθετε. Μπορείτε να είστε η διαφορά που χρειάζεστε εσείς και η κοινότητά σας. Μην τα παρατάς. Είμαστε εδώ για να σας ζητοκραυγάσουμε. Μην τα παρατάς. Τραβάχα δούρο. Σέα impulsado por el valor. Puedes hacerlo. Puedes crecer y aprenderlo. Usted puede ser la diferencia que usted y su comunidad necesitan. No te rindas, estamos aquí animándote y animándote. No te rindas. Werkhart. Wees waarde gedreven. Je kunt het. Je kunt groeien en leren. U kunt het verschil zijn dat u en uw gemeenschap nodig hebben. Geef niet op. We zijn hier om voor je te roten en te juichen. Geef niet op.
Work hard. Be value driven. You can do it. You can grow and learn it. You can be the difference you and your community needs. Don't give up. We are here rooting and cheering for you. Don't give up. Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is the new chemist where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening. Note, the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I. diversity of approaches. One notable strength of the literature on drug delivery is the incredible diversity of approaches and technologies. Researchers have developed various drug delivery systems, including nanoparticles, liposomes, microparticles, and implants, to address different challenges in drug administration. This diversity reflects the field's adaptability and potential for personalized medicine. Targeted drug delivery. The literature emphasizes the importance of targeted drug delivery systems. Targeting specific cells or tissues while minimizing off-target effects is a central goal. Many studies highlight the potential of ligand functionalized nanoparticles and antibody drug conjugates for targeted therapy. However, challenges like receptor heterogeneity and limited access to some tissues still exist. Biocompatibility and safety. Ensuring the biocompatibility and safety of drug delivery systems is a major concern. Researchers have made progress in this area, but there is a need for more comprehensive studies on long-term safety, potential immunogenicity, and biodegradability, especially for nanocarriers and biomaterials. Controlled release systems. The development of controlled release drug delivery systems has garnered significant attention. These systems allow for prolonged drug release, reducing the need for frequent dosing and improving patient compliance. Nevertheless, Challenges remain in achieving precise control over release kinetics and adapting these systems to different drugs. Nanotechnology and nanomedicine. Nanotechnology-based drug delivery systems have been a major focus of research. While they offer many advantages, such as enhanced drug solubility and bioavailability, challenges include potential toxicity, manufacturing scalability, and regulatory concerns that need further exploration. Personalized medicine. The concept of personalized medicine has gained momentum, with the literature emphasizing the importance of tailoring drug delivery to individual patient characteristics, including genetics and disease profiles. However, the practical implementation of personalized drug delivery remains a challenge, particularly in clinical settings. Emerging Technologies The literature highlights the exploration of emerging technologies like 3D printing, microscale and nanoscale systems, and artificial intelligence in drug delivery. These technologies hold promise but require further research and standardization. Clinical translation. Bridging the gap between laboratory research and clinical translation is a recurring theme, 
while many innovative drug delivery systems show promise in preclinical studies, the literature often acknowledges the challenges in achieving successful clinical outcomes, including regulatory hurdles and scalability issues. Interdisciplinary collaboration. Successful drug delivery research often involves interdisciplinary collaboration between scientists, engineers, pharmacologists, and clinicians. The literature acknowledges the importance of breaking down silos to advance the field and develop clinically relevant solutions. Ethical and regulatory considerations. The literature recognizes the need for careful ethical and regulatory oversight in drug delivery research, especially in areas like gene therapy and advanced biotechnologies. Addressing safety, efficacy, and societal implications remains a priority. History Overview Ancient Remedies The history of drug delivery can be traced back to ancient civilizations such as the Egyptians, Greeks, and Chinese, who used various methods like poultices, teas, and ointments to administer medicinal substances. Herbal medicines. For much of human history, medicine primarily consisted of herbal remedies. These were often ingested as teas or applied topically. Pharmaceutical revolution. 19th century. The 19th century saw significant advancements in pharmaceuticals, including the development of standardized dosages and the use of early drug forms like pills and tinctures. Injection techniques. 19th-20th century, the late 19th century brought about the development of injection techniques, such as the hypodermic needle, which allowed for the direct administration of drugs into the bloodstream. This marked a significant step forward in drug delivery precision. Oral dosage forms. 20th century, the 20th century saw the emergence of various oral drug dosage forms, such as tablets and capsules, making it easier to administer medications. Controlled release formulations also began to be developed. Nanotechnology and drug delivery. Late 20th century. The late 20th century saw the rise of nanotechnology in drug delivery. Nanoparticles and liposomes were developed to improve drug targeting, increase bioavailability, and reduce side effects. Transdermal patches. 1970s. The introduction of transdermal patches like the nicotine patch in the 1970s offered a non-invasive and convenient way to deliver drugs through the skin. Biotechnology and gene therapy, late 20th century, early 21st century, advances in biotechnology and gene therapy opened up new possibilities for drug delivery. Viral vectors and gene editing technologies allowed for the delivery of genetic material to treat various diseases. Targeted drug delivery, 21st century, targeted drug delivery systems, such as monoclonal antibodies and nanoparticles, gained prominence in the 21st century. These systems can selectively deliver drugs to specific cells or tissues, minimizing side effects. Smart drug delivery systems. Ongoing research in drug delivery continues to evolve with the development of smart drug delivery systems that respond to physiological cues or are controlled remotely. These systems aim to further enhance drug efficacy and patient compliance. Personalized medicine. Ongoing advances in genomics and pharmacogenetics have led to the concept of personalized medicine where drug delivery is tailored to an individual's genetic makeup and specific needs. Future directions. The field of drug delivery is continuously evolving, with ongoing research into innovative approaches, such as 3D printing of pharmaceuticals, microscale and nanoscale technologies, and the use of artificial intelligence to design optimized drug delivery systems. In summary, 
the historical background and evolution of research on drug delivery have been marked by a progression from traditional herbal remedies to increasingly sophisticated and precise methods of administering medications. This evolution continues today, with a focus on enhancing drug efficacy, minimizing side effects, and tailoring treatments to individual patients. Key Papers on Drug Delivery Langer Welcome to The New Chemist. We're glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Here on The New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as careers, community, research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is Dr. Robert Langer. Thanks for joining me today. It is good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Dr. Robert Samuel Langer Jr. is an American chemical engineer, scientist, entrepreneur, inventor, and one of the 12 Institute professors at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He was formerly the Germershausen Professor of Chemical and Biomedical Engineering and maintains activity in the Department of Chemical Engineering and the Department of Biological Engineering at MIT. He is also a faculty member of the Harvard-MIT Program in Health Sciences and Technology and the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research. In 2015, Dr. Robert Langer was awarded the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. He has numerous accolades and achievements. Please welcome Dr. Robert Langer. Okay, Dr. Langer, thank you so much for joining me today. It is good to have you here. My pleasure. Yes. So what has been some of the most beneficial advice you have received? Well, I would say that, um, you know, it's, it's not so much advice as just a role model. You know, Judah Folkman was my uh, postdoctoral advisor and he was the kind of person that believed anything was possible. I don't know if he used those words, but he uh, he lived that, you know. And so I think that 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 thinking that anything is possible, and and I think recognizing when you think that way, you're going to often get criticism. There's going to be a lot of roadblocks, and then not giving up. And I think you know. So I mean, he never said it quite that way, but that but that's that's kind of what I learned from him as a mentor to 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 dream big dreams and never give up. Oh, wow. That's, that's very good. It's very good. Persistence is important. So, uh, do you have any advice for those wanting to pursue the field you are currently working in? Well, what I just said is part of the advice. You know, I okay. think it's important to do things that are transformative and not incremental. But okay. recognizing that if you do do that, you, you will run into roadblocks and you will fail sometimes. So, uh, you know, so the important thing is, as you just said, is persistence. Persistence is very important. Yeah, that's true. You know, Dr. Langer, um, I, I listened to several of your interviews, and one of the things that stands out to me is that it, your academic path, your academic journey was not easy. 
you encountered some challenges and I would I, I think it's very commendable that you were able to persist and be successful amidst those challenges. So in line with your major, why did you choose chemical engineering as a field to major? Yeah, I would like to tell you that it was really well thought out, but I, I can't say that. You know, initially when I was in high school, my dad and my uh, uh, you know, guidance counselor said, well, you know, you're good in science and math, so you should become an engineer. So I became an engineer. And, uh, you know, and, and, and then when I was at Cornell as an undergraduate, uh, the course I liked the best and the one I was best at was, uh, was, was chemistry. So I became a chemical engineer. Okay. Oh, wow. Wow. So um, I'm glad I did. I think it's been a great profession. Yeah, I, I would say so too. Um, so in terms of your doctoral studies, is it along the same lines that you chose chemical engineering to do your doctoral studies in? Or are those things the uh, deciding factors, the things that affected you in your undergraduate years? Well, you know, so I became, I, I for a long time, I didn't have a very clear idea of what I wanted to do. As an undergraduate, like I say, I majored in chemical engineering for the reasons that I said. As a graduate student, I mean, I, in a way, it was just a continuation of that. I, was, I still was kind of searching for something I wanted to do. And when I was a graduate student, I got involved in a lot of other things too, like helping start a school for poor high school students and things like that. And, uh, and, and, and developing new chemistry and math curriculum. And so uh, it wasn't until my postdoctoral work that I really sort of found a, a research direction you know, and, and that was by being in the hospital. I worked in Children's Hospital as a postdoc, and I was really the only engineer there. And as I mentioned, the man I work with, Judah Folkman, he was a great role model, and, and I started to think about how I could combine, solve medical problems with my chemical engineering background. Okay, yeah, that's, that's, very, that's very good. So um, you mentioned how you started the school, and I remember hearing about the school um, in a previous interview. Um, so my question to you is oh, why and how did you go about starting that school? Well, actually, I, well, so my interest in teaching started when I was at Cornell because I was a, a teaching assistant and I really loved that. And so when I came to Boston the next year and Cambridge uh, to join MIT uh, as a student, graduate student, I got involved in doing some tutoring activities in Roxbury and Cambridge. And so there were some people, uh, Peter Haggerty, Neil Didrikson, Paul Didrikson, they were interested in starting this school for working class uh, children, or for kids. And they had heard about me, so they asked would I help on developing the math and science programs. And oh. I thought this sounded like a very worthwhile thing, so I did. Oh, that's very good. So how have you maintained vision and teamwork in your environment? How have you maintained those things in your work environment, in your lab? How do you maintain those things? Well, I guess they're, they're different things. So vision, I, I, I try to encourage everybody in the lab to think big and to dream big dreams and to do things that can hopefully have a big effect on, on the health and well-being of the world. And, 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 and so, you know, in, ter and in terms of teamwork, um, you know, and I encourage everybody to work together. You know, we have a lot of people, we have over a hundred people in the lab, but I try to hire, I mean, this may sound almost silly, but I try to hire very nice people 
uh, who get along with each other, but who also really want to make a difference in the world. And, mm -hmm. and so that's what I've tried to do uh, repeatedly. Uh, so yeah. I, 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 and they, they've been great. I mean, the people we've had in our lab have been outstanding. Yeah, that's very true. So in terms of your success, I think any, by any standard of measurement, international, national, um, I think people can all agree that you have been successful as a pioneer in the field. So what would you say has complemented the most to your success? Would it be mentoring? Would it be networking? Would it be your, your approach to studying or learning or teaching? What would you say has, has been the main driver or, or impetus in which you have been successful? Well, I think to, to whatever, to the extent that I have been successful, and that may be debatable, but to the extent that I have, you know, I really think it's been the people. I've had wonderful, wonderful people working in the lab, and, and they've been great. I, I like to think that uh, they feel like I've treated them well and that I've encouraged them uh, to, to, to live their dreams. Um, you know, but really it's, it's having just tremendous people. You know, MIT has been a great place and we've just had a tremendous uh, number of, of very, very good students and postdocs in the lab. And, you know, by any measures, it's, it, you know, I think 19 are now in the National Academy of Engineering, I think 16 wow. in the National Academy of Medicine, you know, and they've won all kinds of awards, started companies. I mean, they've been very, very successful. So uh, to me, it's, it's, it's been them. Yeah, it's true. People are important. Very important. So given all your responsibilities and accomplishments, how have you or how do you strive to maintain or maintain a balanced life? Well, my wife is very good at, at, at making sure I do. You know, when my children okay. were little, she told me uh, that if I wasn't traveling and uh, that I shouldn't, uh, that I needed to be home by seven every night to spend time with the kids. And when I traveled, I mean, of course, right now I'm not traveling, but when I did travel, certainly when the children were young, I mean, you know, or, or even at home, I, um, I would never be gone for very long. You know, I, I, uh, I, I kind of learned that that would, was important to them. So like for just to give an example, five years in a row, I had to go to Israel for something like a lecture or an award or a degree, honorary degree. And all those five times in a row, five different years, I didn't use a hotel, you know, I just flew over, I spent part of the day there, and then I flew right back. Wow. They have a 1 a.m. flight from uh, Tel Aviv to, to New York, so I was able to do that. But, but anyhow, that, 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 so I, I never would be gone for very long. Okay, wow, yeah, family is a very important thing. And I, so, I would, so you would say your family is a basis on which you've been able to keep a balanced life. Well, that and my wife has been very good, Laura. She she tells me what she thinks. So if I did something, if I was probably spending too much time doing other things, she would certainly let me know. Okay, yeah, that's good. So um, in terms of your impactful ideas, what would you say have been your most impactful and effective ideas to date? Well, I think there's been three or four areas. It's hard to you know, that, that, uh, that have been uh, important, I guess. One has been the work we did with Judah Folkman on isolating the first uh, angiogenesis inhibitors, the first blood vessel inhibitors, you know, and that's led because of work that others had done after that, at companies and so forth, to many new drugs that would be useful in treating cancer and eye diseases. 
The second is probably the work on new materials and controlled drug delivery, which also, and you know, that includes nanotechnology and that's also led to, you know, quite a number of, of, of products um, uh, by different groups again. And finally would be the idea of uh, that with Jay Vacanti of tissue engineering, you know, where you could combine uh, materials and cells and, you know, make new tissues and organs, whether that be a organ on a chip or a new tissue in the body like artificial skin. Okay. Okay. So in terms of you finding and seeking the right environment for you to thrive scientifically and intellectually, how did you go about finding that? How, how, what was your guide or what was your rubric or basis on which you found that environment? I take it it was at MIT. Uh, but how did you find that? Yeah, well, I mean, so there are different ways. I mean, I, I, I really, I suppose the experience I had at Children's Hospital, uh, that, that was really key. Um, and, and then MIT, I mean, I, you know, that was, I guess, good luck. I, but I, you know, that they hired me and, you know, things worked out there. Ultimately, though, you create your own environment, really, when you run a lab, it's, it's the, you know, it's the environment you create for others, you know, that ends up makes a difference, that ends up making a difference. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, because I've heard other people say that as well. It's not so much about the environment being there already, but you can complement the creating that environment for yourself. Um, I think that's key. Yes, I agree. I agree with you. Yeah, and which you're able to thrive um, scientifically and intellectually. I heard someone say um, you can almost somewhat bend the environment to your will or complement it, change it. Um, well, you so, can create if you, you, you have a big effect on the environment by the way you treat people and the way you, you act as a role model or lack thereof. That's true. That's very true. Your actions do count. So, um, in terms of you being, in terms of you maintaining view of the bigger picture in your career, in your life in general how have you done that when you face challenges or obstacles how have you maintained a view of the bigger picture that kept you going and that kept you persistent how, how did you do that well i guess that's just me you know i'm a very stubborn person if i believe in something i just keep trying and trying i don't give up easily if i feel something can do some good if i feel that we've made a finding that's important you know, I'll, I'll do, I'll do the best I can. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's very good. So Dr. Langer, um, I, you know, I, my career path, I'll just speak on my career path thus far. Um, I started off, um, engineering at Georgia Tech and some things happened and I transitioned to another institute and I switched my major to biochemistry. So I changed path because also my interests changed as well. Um, so my question to you is for those in the field of engineering, what would be, um, some of your advice or what would be the key things that you did that complemented to you being able to transition to eventually a doctoral program in engineering and eventually to serve as uh, a pioneer in the field? What were some of the th key things that you did, um, in your time as an undergraduate and as a graduate student? Yeah, well, I think as an undergraduate, I feel you really want to learn the fundamentals. You want to learn the fundamentals and you want to really do well in class. 
Uh, I, I mean, that, and that should be your highest priority. I mean, I wouldn't do research or other things until I knew I could do well in, in class, so to speak. As a graduate student, I think then, you know, you also want to do the same thing, continue learning the fundamentals well, but then you really want to pick a research project and a research advisor if you're getting a PhD uh, or, or even a master's degree who, who's really a good mentor. And what does that mean? I mean, hopefully that they treat you well and that they put you in an environment or have you in an environment where you can learn from them and from others. Okay. Yeah, that's good. So I think most of us can agree that um, this time has been somewhat challenging for a lot of people due to the pandemic. Um, and a lot of people have encountered obstacles or challenges. So if you, if what has been the, what has kept you optimistic during this time, during this pandemic? What has kept well, you two, things. Two, two, two things. One of the things that we're, I've been doing is I've been spending a lot of time trying to fight this pandemic. You know, one of the companies I helped starts Moderna. Moderna has been one of the leading companies in terms of creating the COVID vaccine. You know, so they're now in what's called phase three trials for doing it. And actually, almost every one of the companies that's doing uh, an RNA vaccine, and those are the leading ones in terms of moving forward in the clinic, uses nanoparticles. Uh, you know, which is an area to, to deliver the RNA. And, you know, so that's an area that we've done a lot on. And we're also doing work in the lab on vaccines uh, with masks, uh, creating new masks, creating new ventilators, creating split ventilators, um, you know, working on uh, nasal sprays that might be able to combat it, working on new blood tests. So I've been, we've been very active in terms of really trying to hopefully make a difference uh, in, in treating COVID, in addition to, you know, even though research slowed down on other things because of the rules at the universities, you know, I think that uh, we continue that research too. And we're working a lot with the Gates Foundation on things that can help the developing world and, and just other things that I, I hope will, will be important to the world at some point. And again, I believe in all these things, so we're not going to stop, uh, you know, and so, but all that is, is what we've tried to do. So I have two, two, two more questions. Um, in terms of your work with the COVID-19 pandemic, in terms of all these things you're designing and engineering, have you seen the impact or is it still in the works? Have you started to see impact from your work thus far? I'd say the answer to that is we've seen some, uh, some impact. I mean, so what can I say? The fact that, I mean, some of the things that we did actually now over 45 years ago, creating, you know, small particles that could deliver nucleic acids. I mean, like I say, that's being used by Moderna, Pfizer, uh, many companies. I mean, again, lots of other people contributed too, but, but we did that early. We, we also developed other kinds of nanoparticles. Uh, so, and, and, and again, a lot of it's being done by our students and uh, some of these places. So I think that the vaccines, they haven't made an impact yet, but other than the people that have been treated by it, but it, that seems to me the nation's biggest hope, the world's biggest hope is the vaccines. Other things we've done have had an impact. We've helped, uh, we helped make new masks and you know, several million uh, of those have already been used by people. And I think, you know, there are better masks, um, you know, so, uh, and some of the others are, are in the works, but are in clinical trials and, you know, they've moved very fast. So. 
So I, I think that we've been able to make some uh, impact on patients already and, and hopefully more. Okay. So, Dr. Dr. Langer, um, you know, you mentioned, just going back, you mentioned how you said you're somewhat stubborn and you're persistent. Is it something that was taught to you in your upbringing or is it something you developed over time in academic settings? I think it's something that I just was born that way. You know, I think I've always okay. been stubborn. I'm sure okay. my parents thought that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, Dr. Langer, it was so good to have you to have you on today. Um, I really appreciate you taking this time to chat with me and for us to discuss your career path and how you're currently making a difference and how you have made a how you made a substantial difference in chemical engineering and biomolecular engineering uh, fields. So thank you again for join me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure and good luck. Welcome to the New Chemist Podcast. We're so glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Odyssey, Stitcher, and a variety of other platforms. Here on the New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is a science of change, as well as other scientists' careers, community research and other lectures in chemistry and we analyze those lectures as well. My guest today is Dr. Campo. It is so good to have him as a guest today. He is the Associate Vice President and Head of Small Molecule Research and Development at Merck, a very established and accomplished scientist having received numerous citations, patents and multiple awards. He is currently a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. It's definitely a treat and an honor to have him as a guest today. Okay, so Dr. Campo, let's begin. Um, what have been your longstanding interests in the field of science? So ever since I was a young kid, I was uh, interested in sort of how things work. Um, you know, asking tons of questions, trying to understand how the world works. I was also always interested in building things. I was one of those, you know, obsessed with Lego kids. Oh, yeah. And um, in high school, I became really interested in sort of the biochemistry through one of my biology teachers who was sort of explaining how cells work and ultimately the chemistry of cells. And I became, or at least at the time, I thought I was really interested in biology and I decided to pursue uh, undergraduate studies in biopharmaceutical sciences. But I would say that I um, probably um, didn't realize that what I really liked about that high school biology class was actually the organic chemistry part of it. And I realized this um, when I was a second year graduate student, uh, second year undergraduate student, sorry, in organic chemistry um, in a class taught by Professor Louis Berrio at the University of Ottawa. And he really ignited something within me in terms of my interest in organic chemistry and the chemistry of carbon and sort of how you stitch these molecules together. Um, and sort of started to introduce the concept of how these molecules could have an impact um, on the world. And ultimately, um, I decided to pursue graduate studies um, in large part because of my interest um, in, in organic chemistry. And I did a PhD in catalysis where I studied how uh, late transition metals can um, catalyze reactions that would otherwise be impossible and oh, yeah. the chemistry of palladium. And through that work, I became interested in sort of mechanistic understanding and the details of how reactions work. And mm. ultimately, uh, what happened was I, I realized that, um, you know, through, through an acquaintance of mine, someone in my network learned, you know, what 
process chemists do and found that it was a phenomenal way to apply my strengths and things that I was really interested in to a problem that could have a really big impact on the world and, and ultimately decided to join Merck as a process chemist a little over 15 years ago. Okay, yeah. So how do you maintain vision and teamwork in your environment and your work environment at Merck as you work on these research projects? How are you maintaining the big ideas, the big picture uh, ideals of vision and teamwork? How do you maintain those? So one of the things that I always found was really important um, is to uh, link our work to the purpose that it is we're trying uh, to, yeah, yeah. to accomplish. And yeah, I think yeah. we have sort of a such a privileged position, um, you know, as scientists in pharma to be able to link the work that we do to ultimately improving human health. Like we're literally changing the world one reaction at a time. Um, wow. and there, wow. you know, That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> and and there there aren't a lot of necessarily jobs out there where you can directly link what you do um, mm -hmm. uh, to a purpose. And I think that's a really important thing that I try to reinforce with my team. But I also think it's important to have broad interests. And so I think as scientists, it's it's really it's really easy to get into this tiny little uber specific area of expertise, um, which is how the world works uh, for science. But I've always thought. It's really important to have broad interests. And I think for pharmaceutical development, again, because there are so many disciplines uh, that have to come to bear to bring a drug to market, that's another way for me to sort of think about the bigger picture is understanding what the biologists are doing and understanding what the chemical engineers in my team are doing or understanding how medicinal chemists design molecules and ultimately how our manufacturing colleagues are going to have to, to, to utilize the chemistry that we put in place and our, and our drug product colleagues that have to formulate the drug. So... It's um, it's a tremendous privilege, I would say, for us to have that purpose, but also to have that opportunity to get that really broad, um, you know, set of stakeholders. And the last thing I'll say is, um, because we're still doing cutting edge chemistry, we're very well connected and, and continue to contribute to the academic community as well. Oh, and that's okay. another way to sort of broaden wow. your, your interests and get the big picture. Okay, wow, that's good. That's good. So if you had, if you were advising or giving suggestions to someone who wanted to work in the same role that you're working in as someone who deals with small molecule research and development, what would you say would be the toolkit or the degree that would give you the best chance of getting an opportunity to work at Merck? So I think there's so many disciplines at Merck that contribute to developing small molecules, not to mention all the biologics and vaccines that we develop as well. That, that I think I think there isn't like a single discipline or a single degree, um, mm -hmm. you know, specifically for my career path and, and being a process chemist, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, advanced degree in synthetic organic chemistry was uh, definitely uh, a good way for me to get entry into, into the field. We hire a lot of chemists that... Um, we hire to solve really difficult problems. Um, most mm -hmm. of them have graduate degrees, PhDs or, or masters. Mm -hmm. um, but we also hire chemical engineers. Um, we hire analytical scientists. Um, some of our specialty groups have um, other disciplines like uh, protein engineers or okay. uh, people who have experience in, in other types of engineering. So it's pretty broad. Um, the biggest biggest impact or biggest opportunity to come to a place like Merck is really to leverage the network that you build throughout your studies, right? Whether it's through your undergraduate institution or through a graduate advisor and really get to know people that work in the area that you're interested in. And then you'll really know what it's like to work there. And first, you'll know if it's a good fit for you, but that second, that can open doors to get the opportunity to interview. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good. 
So what would you say has been your most creative piece of work in the field of science, specifically on what you work on? And you can be mm. as technical or as simple as you want to be. Um, what would you say has been your most creative piece of work? Is it an elegant bond disconnection? Or, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, the longer you are in the job that I am, the less close to the science you are. But if okay. I go all the way back. So what I would say is um, there's maybe a couple things. So maybe I'll split it by my graduate work versus my work at Merck. So when I was a graduate student, um, I had an insight that um, a certain type of electronic effect in the molecules that I was studying could be exploited to make a carbon-carbon bond that hadn't been known before. And, okay. and that, that, that seed of an idea eventually became what we now call concerted methylation deprotonation, which is a, a, a well-accepted mechanism okay. in uh, palladium-catalyzed um, direct aerylation reactions. And it was, you know, I was 24 years old. I had this idea that, you know, CH acidity was going to be an important factor in these reactions and that electron deficient arenes should work, which was not known at the time. And sure. ultimately that ended up working and my whole PhD ended up being about that. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud of that work. I would say if, if I have to pick one thing that I'm the most proud of at Merck so far, there are two projects on which I made really important contributions. Uh, one of them is Duravarine, which is a, an approved drug for HIV treatment where I was able to design a synthesis of that molecule to really um, rapidly and quickly bring it into preclinical and clinical studies. And, and ultimately that drug was approved. And so I'm really proud of that. And then more recently, I actually led a cross-functional team that um, developed um, a cardiovascular drug that you know isn't on the market yet, so I can't really talk about it. But it was um, a cholesterol medication that's now going into phase three at Merck. And uh, it was one of the first uh, macrocyclic peptides that Merck um, synthesized and ultimately brought to market. And our team had to develop a bunch of extremely novel chemistry in order to be able to do that. So I can't wait to be able to tell the world about that in a couple of years. Okay, that sounds really good. It's interesting that you worked on a, on a HIV drug, you said, an HIV drug? Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, that's interesting because one of my mentors, I don't know if you're familiar with the name, Lou Jungheim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who worked on Nilpinavir. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, so nice. yeah, yeah, it's definitely, definitely interesting. It's an interesting connection, <laughs> interesting conversation. So, small um, yeah, small world in a way. Um, so how have you sought or found the right environment for you to thrive scientifically and intellectually? How did you go about finding Merck or did Merck find you? What process yeah. do you use to find this um, job or find this role or progress in your career? So, so I, I think I would be kidding myself if I didn't think there's a tremendous amount of luck that goes into these types of things, right? So yeah, serendipity. I was, I was a undergrad at the University of Ottawa. Um, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do long-term, but I knew that I really loved organic chemistry and that I wanted to do something there. A friend of mine um, who was a lab, who, who was uh, sort of my lab partner was like, hey, I'm going to go to grad school and I'm going to work with this guy, Keith Fanyu. He just started like this month. He's a brand new prof, but he's really cool and I want to work with him. So I went to meet with Keith and I said, hey, I think I want to go to grad school too. Like I hadn't really thought this through yet. And we talked for about an hour and there's like a spark, you know, like you meet these people and you're yeah. just like, wow, this person's awesome. I want to just spend time with this person. It's going to be great. <laughs> so, you know, he didn't have a lab. He didn't have like, I didn't know anything about him. Um, he was a tremendously successful graduate student, but at the time I wasn't 
like in the know, right? So I joined okay. this guy's lab and it ended up being, you know, maybe the best four years um, professionally, you know, like it, it was just an, an amazing experience uh, to work with him as a mentor. And through him, I learned a lot about pharmaceutical science and sort of like the different places that people do process chemistry and med chem and what's the difference. And one of his close friends was a process chemist at Merck and he would invite him every year to come and speak at the university and speak to the group. Um, and so this guy, Greg Hughes, um, used to come and give these scientific talks like this is what we do and this is the impact that we have. And I was always tremendously inspired by that. And I met him and we eventually built a relationship. And so, you know, four years later or three and a half years later, when there was a position at Merck, he actually called and said, hey, there's a position. You should apply for it um, so that we can interview you and see if you're a good fit to come here. So, you know, if you think about that progression that I just walked you through, like I didn't talk about my accomplishments. I didn't talk about, you know, like obviously you got to deliver the science, but if I hadn't been in Keith's lab and if Keith's best friend hadn't been a process chemist at Merck, I, I doubt that I would have had the opportunity to interview. And I think sometimes we just have to lean into that, um, that, you know, chance matters. And so that's why you need to know as many people as possible. And you need to kind of cultivate that network because I think it's really important. Yeah, but then once you interview, you know, I always tell people when you interview at a place, you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. I agree. You, you become the people that you work with. And so when you're interviewing there, if you meet people that you're like, wow, I hope one day I can do what that person does, then mm -hmm. that's a great fit. And that's how I felt when I interviewed at Merck. I knew that I wanted to be a process chemist at Merck as soon as I met the people that worked there, the way that they thought about problems, the way they were really passionate about the impact they could have. Mm -hmm. And, and that has been true. And it's been true for the last 15 years, which is why I'm still here. Wow. Wow, that's good. That's good. Wow. That's good. So uh, what would you say has complemented your success so far? Yes, you said there's a degree of serendipity or chance or whatever you want to phrase it. Who would you say has been one of your driving, encouragers, motivators, mm. uh, inspire, source of inspiration? What would you say has complemented your success? Can you mm. name some of the people or talk about the people who really played a role outside of the ones you've mentioned already? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I would say there's, I, I like, I like sort of your line of questioning here. Like, I think the people really matter. I think your mindset matters a lot as well. Yeah. So yeah. I've always been fascinated by ideas. Um, I'm sort of creative by nature. I like, I'm excited by new ideas and the prospect of doing something new. Okay. And, and I have a, probably more of an optimistic bend than a, than a, than a pessimistic bend. And, and okay. scientists who are listening to this will know, like you, you bring a new idea to someone and one person will say, well, that's definitely not going to work. You shouldn't do that. And then another person will say, wow, that's really cool. You should try that, you know? And I've surrounded myself with people that are more on that side of the spectrum, you know, like okay. people that are going to cheer you on when you have a cool idea that you want to try. And, mm -hmm. and I would say, you know, I already talked about, about Keith and about Greg, but when I was at Frost, my, one of my first mentors there was uh, a guy named Stefan Willette and a, and a woman called Sarah Dolman. And they had been there three or four years. So they kind of knew the ropes, but they were really good at sort of, encouraging me to try my ideas. I had a peer that just started at the time, this guy um, named Ernest Lee, who's now at Gilead. And I remember going into his office with a crazy idea and I drew it on the board and I was like, do you think this is going to work? Cause nobody else thinks it's going to work. He's like, that's the coolest thing ever. You should try it. And then I went and I tried it and it worked. And it was like, I probably, wow. if he'd have said no, he'd have been like the fifth person to tell me no. And then I probably would have said, okay, I'm not going to try this. And Keith wow. used to say, 
you have to think of an idea long enough to convince yourself to try it, but not too long to convince yourself that it won't work. And I think that that's tremendous advice. Um, I've had other mentors like that. You know, when I, when I first moved to the U.S., I worked very closely with uh, a mentor of mine who's still actually still my boss, Kevin Campos, who was the same way. Um, I have a peer right now, another associate vice president, Becky Ruck, and I that I've worked together for over 10 years, and, and she's like that too. So there's oh, yeah. kind of this element of people that surround you that that sort of um, ultimately make you better. And, that, and that's the only advice I'll leave you for this question is I feel like I've thought a lot about how I can make others around me better. And ultimately that makes me better too. And then we're all better for it. Um, and yeah. I think that's really important. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You bring value to the space that you're in and that value. Yeah. Yeah. It adds, it adds to you and to the others as well. Yeah. That's good. So how do you maintain a balanced life, given all your responsibilities and accomplishments? <laughs> uh, or let's phrase it differently. How do you maintain your priorities? How do you keep your priorities in sure. check? How is your work-life integration? Um, how do you maintain a sense of resilience when you face obstacles? We could all we could phrase this, spin this question yeah. in different ways. No, yeah. I like what you said. I, I like I like what you said. Work life integration or work life fit. I I I, I don't believe in work life balance. I, I think balance um, implies that some of it is bad and some of it is good. Um, fit is about making sure that you get the most out of how you spend your time, regardless of whether that's work or not work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What I would say is. Um, you know, this evolves over time. And as, as your responsibilities increase, this becomes more and more challenging. One of the things that um, I always tell people in my group is you have to have very clear boundaries for certain things. And for me, like I'll give you an example, really early on when I had a very small family, when my, my wife and I first got together and, and ultimately when we had our son, having dinner together every night was really important. And so there was mm -hmm. never going to be a time where um, I would stay late at the lab just because I could and skip dinner or miss dinner with my family. And so, you know, I'm the kind of person that leaves work so that I can get home and have dinner with my family. It doesn't mean that sometimes I don't get back on my computer later or, you know, when I was a graduate student, I'd go back to the lab um, after dinner. But that was sort of one of the imperative things that I wanted to do. Um, and of course, things get in the way of that, like travel and whatever. But, you know, it was one of those things. And I think over time, I got really good um, at figuring out what were those things that were really important to me, either because they brought me strength, they brought me joy, they um, helped me, you know, sustain my passion. And those could be things that are within work as well. So I always tell people like, yeah. find those things at work that you're really good at and that bring you a lot of energy and make sure you do a little bit of that every day because yeah. you could have a day filled with stuff that you're really not interested in on, for whatever reason that particular day or it's a task that you're not particularly excited but yeah. if you can find an hour or two in that day where you're going to do something that you're really passionate about that you're really excited about that's what's ultimately sustain you over time um, and then you just got to be ruthless with your prioritization. And so you have to to weed out the things that um, that really don't drive a value proposition for you, whether that's a professional oh, yeah. value proposition or a personal yeah, value yeah, proposition, yeah. you know. Yeah. And um, and I would say that, again, I always tell people in my team, like, you're going to be asked uh to spend time on all kinds of things. And when people ask, they don't necessarily have the complete picture of what your day looks like or what your life looks like. And it's I okay agree. to say no, right? So spend the time on things that you're really good at and that drive a value proposition for whatever it is you're doing at, the, at that time, whether mm -hmm. that's a company or whether that's your home life. Mm -hmm. And then be ruthless in your prioritization and just start cutting things out to create space for that. And I would say that um, 
that's been tremendously successful for me. Um, I'm actually able to get more done in less time because I don't spend time on things that don't necessarily drive a lot of value, you know? Yeah. And that's really important. Yeah. That's very, that's very good. And that's the same reason. That's the same reason why I enjoy podcasting so much and enjoy having these conversations as well as um, assisting with science education in the community that I serve in and serving as faculty. Yeah. I completely agree with you. You summed it up well. So you also have a podcast farm to table podcast so yes. uh my question to you is what led to you starting that uh what what has been the how do you find time for all of this dr campbell <laughs> uh, you have a family you have a big job you have a, a high ranking job that's a lot of responsibilities and you also have a podcast as well to put the icing on the cake so how do you <laughs> how do you how are you able to do all of this so tell us this is this is actually a great segue, David, because we were just talking about like find the things in your life that bring you joy, joy and dedicate time to it, right? And one of my strengths is communication. Like I get a lot of energy out of meeting new people, out of talking about stuff with people. Um, like if I have a day full of meetings where I'm meeting people one-on-one, I'll be really energized at the end of the day. Whereas if I have a day where I have to sit in my office and work on a document for five or six hours straight or write a paper, or like I'm not interfacing with people, I'm completely drained of energy. And I realized this somewhere about 10 years ago, I sort of did a Clifton Strength Finder assessment and communication was number one. And I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And I realized that some of our strengths are also needs, right? So if you're really good at something, you're, you probably need some of that in your life. And so I started thinking about ways that I could apply my strengths to things that would drive value for our company, right? And oh, yeah. for my job. So one of those things was, well, okay, we have this audience, right, that we speak to at conferences when we visit schools that ultimately ends up being the recruiting pool for our talent, right? Graduate students at universities, but there's an infinite number of universities and an infinite number of graduate students. We can't reach them all. Uh And in 2019, I was at a conference and there was a speaker there, Randy Zuckerberg, who's actually Mark Zuckerberg's sister. And she's a marketing expert. And she says like, you know, podcasting is really taken off in the last few years, but there's this sort of gap for subject matter expert podcasts for like, you know, if you're an organic synthetic chemist and you want to talk about organic synthetic chemistry, there's probably not a podcast, a lot of podcasts about that. And I sort of had that on the back of my mind, like, Hey, maybe Uh we could do that. It would play to my strengths. It could allow us to reach an audience. And then the pandemic happened. Right. Uh And then we all got sent home. We had um, a bunch of interns that were coming for the summer, which usually would work in our laboratories, but we we weren't going to be able to do that during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ideas we had was to start a podcast and work with an intern to sort of pilot what that would look like and have them do some of the editing and sort of lead the effort. But, you know, I would be the host and started reading about podcasting and sort of decided that having a, you know, a co-host in my case was going to be the right fit for me. And so I, I approached Danny Schultz, who's a member of my team. And I was like, hey, you know, I love talking to you all the time. We always have great conversations. Why don't we record them? And okay. that could be a podcast. Yeah. And so we started messing around with that in 2020 and we weren't good at it at first. <laughs> you know, yeah. like we sort of, you yeah, have, have the, growing pain, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the growing pains, right? Yeah. Um, but the, the general idea of that podcast is we pick a paper, usually a recent paper that our team has published. And we sit down with the key, you know, either one or two of the scientists that contributed to that paper. And we try to get to the stories behind the paper. Like, you know, why did you do this work? And yeah. what are the, why, how does it link to what we do? And, and why is it important? You know, because when you read a paper, some of that stuff isn't necessarily written in there. So it's, it's a cool way for, let's say, a graduate student to learn a little bit more about how we work 
It's yeah. a great way for them to learn about the people that are in our organization that they may otherwise not get to meet or hear about. Uh -huh. And so we launched um, summer 2021, so about a year after we started messing around with this as a side project. Um, and then I think we we found kind of our cadence. So like, like you do here, we have somewhat of a structure of, you know, that we help people with preparing. We usually use a slide deck. Um, and so, you know, four or five slides just to kind of help uh, anchor everyone. Um, and then we tend to record in blocks. So we'll, we'll schedule, let's say four or five, you know, episodes worth of guests in a morning and we'll do it all in one shot. And then we spend the next like three or four months working on the editing and the, and the production to get it out the door. So if you think about it, we, we usually have about, a, you know, 10 to 12 episodes a year. Um, and so that's basically three half days worth of recording. Um, and then, and then after that, it's just sort of the, you know, a few, a few hours here and there to get everything buttoned up and launched. And so it ends up being not like a ton of work, um, but it, it is extra work. It's not like something I got to do for my job. We just decided to do it, mm -hmm. but it ended up driving tremendous value. Like pretty much everybody who comes and interviews at Merck now says, Hey, like I heard the podcast and I learned about this paper that I probably yeah. wouldn't have learned about any other way. So yeah. it ended up being exactly what we wanted. But this all started from a place where I was like, I'm a really good communicator. I like talking to people. Mm -hmm. And if I could apply those skills to something that would drive value for my organization, that would be great. And then the pandemic happened and the intern thing lined up and we just did it. So it, yeah. it, it's an example of sort of my philosophy in action, if you will. Yeah, I completely agree. And same thing with me. Like the podcast, my podcast started in August 2020. Uh, right? Yeah, right when the pandemic started. It's amazing how the pandemic spread creativity for many people. And then Absolutely. also I had the opportunity to interview people like the co-founder of Moderna, like professors at Harvard, the Broad Institute, like a variety of people, a Dr. Campo, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs> I've had a lot, I've had a lot of opportunity to meet people and engage in meaningful dialogue and that whole the whole basis and structure of the podcast came from a book find your path um which is published by mit press in terms of yeah. me reading through that and adopting the same method of inquiry for um mm. the podcast so um as we conclude um what advice would you give to those wanting to pursue the field you're currently working in what would you tell someone if they came to you and said i want to do what you're doing in the next 15 years i want to help <laughs> The world in a similar way in the next 15 years yeah how, how should i start what would you tell an undergrad what would you tell a grad student yeah so i think i would i would encourage um undergrads to make sure that they have a passion for the science um, because being a graduate student is difficult <laughs> right there's a ton of failure um, and sometimes, sometimes you wonder like, why did I decide to do this? It seems like I'm working a lot and I'm not making a lot of progress, but being a graduate student is all about overcoming that, right? It's about yeah. learning how to solve problems and realizing that, you know, you don't go from point A to point B directly that sometimes you have to take massive detours and you have to be curious about the world and you have to be curious about your science. And if that, if you feel like you have that, then you should go to grad school. If, if you want to go to grad school just to get a job later, but you're not sure you're going to enjoy the process of struggling through the science that, that doesn't set you up for success. So I would, it needs to start from a place of genuine interest in wanting to understand some problem, some yeah. scientific problem, and then you go to I grad agree. school. I agree, I agree. And then the vast majority of pharma scientists, um, you know, have some sort of graduate degree and, and, and most, at least in, 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 in the chemistry groups have PhDs. And then I think if you really want to take the next step into um, a pharma career in chemistry, 
um, then that really comes down to developing um, the network while you're in grad school. So many schools will have pharmaceutical scientists that visit on a regular basis, mm -hmm. meeting those people, telling them about your accomplishments and your um, and your science um, so that when and if there's a job opening, you're sort of on their list of people they would want to interview. Because the hard part is getting the interview. After that, it's all on you. You know what I mean? It's all yeah. about your accomplishments and how how you're going to make others around you better and how what you're going to bring to that organization. But there's, again, an infinite number of people in an infinite number of locations. And so finding the right people to, to, to bring in for an interview can sometimes be challenging. Um, but I always tell people when I was a graduate student, um, Greg Hughes is one of my mentors. He, he was visiting and someone was like, well, what do I got to do as a graduate student to get a job at Merck? <laughs> and he replied, well, you just got to be awesome, which I thought was a really funny question. But his point was that, when you interview, you're going to have to convince a group of people that you're the kind of person that's going to solve the most challenging problems that um, this company has on the table. And um, so we look for people that are great at solving problems. It's not like we look for sub-disciplines of expertise. Like that happens every once in a while. But generally speaking, scientists are extremely adaptable. And so if you're really good at learning something new and applying it in a way to solve problems, when you come here, we're going to teach you a bunch of new stuff and you're going to solve a bunch of problems. And so that's, that's what I tell people they need to be able to demonstrate in your interviews. Okay. Wow. That's good. It sounds like you are definitely moving forward and making lots of progress. And in my opinion, achieving your lambda marks. So reaching a point where you can transition from one energy state to another or one level to another and make an impact or gain the maximum from your environment. Yes. That is what I would say. So what has been some of the most beneficial advice you have received, either from your parents or professors or um, yeah. family members or significant other? What would you say something that replays in your mind when you like really succeed and do tremendous and bring yeah. you back down in terms of humility? So it uh, <laughs> really helps yeah. you to pick yourself so, up from those rough days. Yeah, I feel like, I, I feel like, I, I don't know if you want to put this in the category of advice, but I had a French literature teacher in, when I was in high school, we were reading this really old piece of French literature and he was really excited about this one passage. And the passage went um, in French, à vaincre sans péril, en triomphe sans gloire, which basically means like to be victorious without peril is to triumph without glory. And for whatever reason, so here I am, 16, 17 years old, I hear this for the first time. But this idea that, you know, you're going to, when you succeed, you're going to look back on those tough moments and realize oh, yeah. that, that having overcome that mm -hmm. will only augment what you ultimately accomplished. Mm -hmm. it, that sense, that, 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 that one line, which is like from whatever, 16th century French literature, um, was really like, it, it makes the, 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 the tough times harder uh, easier to get through because you're sort of like yeah it's really tough right now i'm trying to solve this problem and i don't know if i can solve it but when i solve it this is going to be so much greater and i used to walk around the labs when i was a grad student and walk around the labs at merck and i used to tell people this quote you know like when they were like struggling with something and i'm like when you solve this problem this is going to be even greater right uh -huh. because you'll have overcome this adversity and it, and it reminds me of a quote that i recently heard in a movie about the, the guy who invented the Lamborghini. And he says, it isn't impossible until we fail. And if we fail, we'll fail searching for greatness. So it's kind of this similar, similar vein of like, I just assume that we're gonna get to the right place at the end. And that mindset is really important. It's important for scientists because most experiments that we run will fail, right? Yes. Um, 
But ultimately, as a collective, as a group of scientists that come together to solve these problems in drug discovery and development, we often succeed in the end um, as a group, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's probably, you know, it's not really advice because it came from like a, a book. Um, I already told you about about Keith's quote about mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. not 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 convincing yourself not to do stuff. That's something I repeat all the time as well. Yeah. But to me, those two things are probably the most important things that I think um, people should take away from from this conversation. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I remember this book, Good Timber. As we conclude, remember this um, quote from Good Timber. This poem. Um, it said, "The tree that never had to fight for sun and sky and air and light." But stood out in the open plain and always got share of rain. Never became a forest king, but lived and died a scrubby thing. The man who <laughs> never had to toil to gain and farm his patch of soil. Welcome to the new chemist. We're glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Here on The New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put, is the science of change, as well as careers, community, research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest this morning is Dr. M.K. Brown. Thanks for joining me this morning. It is good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Dr. Brown grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and after graduating high school, moved to central New York to pursue an undergraduate degree at Hamilton College. Here, Dr. Brown became interested in organic chemistry by working in the labs of Ian Rosenstein. Upon graduation, Professor Brown moved to Boston College and received his PhD in organic chemistry with Professor Amir Hoveda in 2008. After completion of his graduate studies, he began a Ruth L. Kirschenstein National Institutes of Health funded postdoctoral fellowship in the laboratories of the Chemistry Nobel Laureate E.J. Corey at Harvard University. In 2011, Dr. Brown joined the faculty at Indiana University. Please welcome Dr. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for joining me today. It is good to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Yep. So, what have been your long-standing interests in the field of science? So, for, for me as an organic chemist, I'm really interested in the synthesis of complex organic-based molecules. And one of the, the, the long-standing interests that, I'm, that I'd like to, that I'm trying to pursue within my career is trying to develop uh, uh, ways in which we can do scalable synthesis of complex molecules. Oftentimes complex organic molecules are very difficult to prepare in sufficient quantities. Uh, this is important mainly for the pharmaceutical industry as complex organic molecules are often used as drugs to tr treat a variety of human ailment ailments. So I'd like to be able to d uh, think about ways and develop ways in which we can try and make these uh, important molecules on, on large scale. Okay, yeah, that's very good, it's very good. Um, so how do you maintain a view of the bigger picture in your career and in your life in general? So, well, my, my interest scientifically at least is thinking about 
uh, scalable total synthesis. One of the, the bigger picture things that I think about, at least as, as being somebody um, at a university, is actually training of graduate students. Uh, oftentimes my students proceed to careers in the chemical industry, oftentimes in the pharmaceutical industry. So I see as one of the, the primary drivers of what I do here is to train students to ultimately go into those careers and there also make uh, significant advances um, in whatever uh, field that they choose uh, to be in. And honestly, it's one of the things I'm most proud of is uh, the positions uh, that my students get um, once they leave my group. And I, I love to see them develop over the years um, and, and doing fantastic things. Yeah, that's very good. And that's very important as well. So how have you maintained vision and teamwork in your environment? So how do you um, maintain that? Yeah, so teamwork, I, I think uh, a lot of it is uh, having a lot of group events. So um, whether that's just group meetings where I, I constantly talk to my students, uh, we always are, are, I'm always walking through lab, talking to students about the research. And I often like to have several students sort of talk together. Um, I think that sort of br brings together sort of a collegial uh, environment. When students know what other students are doing within the group, they can often, you know, help each other try and solve some of the diff difficult problems uh, that they have. And, and one of the things that I, I think is also important, not only is scientifically, you know, trying to advance here through a collaborative effort, but also like trying to have some fun with this, right? So we do like to have some group activities and yeah. uh, do fun things outside of outside of the lab because you know we're, we're all people and we like to, you know. To do other things and so trying to um, get to know your lab mates on maybe more of a, a deeper level not just on the, the purely scientific uh, level so I think sort of the combination of those two things so you know it's it's perhaps cl cliche to say this but we like to, to work hard in, in lab but also play hard and you know and, and, and have fun with each other that's good that's good um, so if you had to describe one aspect or one feature that complemented to your success as a student and now as a professor, what would you say? How have you been so successful as a student and now a professor? Um, so one of the things that I, I, I try and do is, is to keep really excited about what, what it is my job. Like, I mean, I, I absolutely love what I do. And so it, it, it's not hard for me to spend enormous amounts of time thinking about science and talking to students. Like I, I don't, I don't mind it. I don't, I don't get uh, burnt out that easily <laughs> from, okay. from spending a lot of time on this. And I, I think for me that, that that just keeps me driving, keeps pushing forward. Like I'm always thinking about the the next steps of a project, or talking to students about the next step of a project, or even at the end of a student's PhD, I'm thinking about well, what kind of careers can they pursue? How can I help them achieve what they want to achieve in life? So it's it's. It's just, yeah, an absolute passion for, for science, frankly. <laughs> that okay. I, I, I just, I really like what I do. And so it's, it's, it's yeah, it's not hard to, to work hard. Yeah, that's good. It's good when you enjoy your work. So what have been your most effective and impactful ideas to date? If you had to sum it up. What? Um, so from, a, from a scientific standpoint, Yes. Uh, the, the developments that have been going on in my, my group. So as I mentioned, we like to think about developing scalable synthesis of complex molecules. And the strategy that's been uh, being investigated in my group for the last nine years or so since I started is actually thinking about what are called alkene functionalization reactions. So 
alkenes are are ubiquitous functional group in organic chemistry, and we try and use those in interesting ways to build molecular complexity very quickly with very simple starting materials. And, um, we are certainly not the only ones that, that work in this area, but I think some of the contributions that my group has made um, in the area of what are called cycloaddition reactions, which are a way to functionalize alkene, and also in the ways of transition metal catalysis um, are unique and powerful ways to transform the alkene, which is a simple organic molecule, into something much more uh, complicated, which is what is a way in which we think we can uh, make complicated molecules very quickly. Okay. So also, Dr. Brown, I saw that you did some work in alkyl boration, so some borane chemistry. So what led you to work in that, work in that area or work with those compounds? Yeah, so we, we wanted to try and develop generally effective ways to functionalize alkenes. And there's several ways in which you can go about that. You can develop lots of different specific reactions to functionalize each alkene, to put two different groups, to add two different groups at each position of the alkene. Um, while we became interested in, in boration reactions, is that it allows us to put in a carbon group, like an aryl group or an alkyl group, but also a boron group. And the reason that the boron is important is because it's well known that there's a lot of reactions in which you can transform the carbon boron bond mm -hmm. into a variety of other bonds, like oxygen, nitrogen, and halogens. Mm -hmm. And so in doing so, when we do a, what's called a carboboration reaction, it allows us to do one simple reaction and then diversify the product of that reaction in many, many interesting ways, uh, taking advantage of the idea of using a carboboration uh, reaction. So that's been really effective in our group uh, over the last seven years or so since that reaction was uh, discovered within our group. Uh, to oh, okay. So also uh, along the same lines of boring chemistry, um, would you say, this is just a, a quick question, would you say uh, that you have you ever used in your lab hydroboration oxidation? Uh, we don't. We have used hydroboration oxidation. Uh, we have certainly used the, the second part of that. The oxidation aspect okay. is something that we use quite frequently in our group. So yeah, we are drawing a lot on sort of the chemistry that uh, um, has been developed for, for for years, right? Since like the '60s and '70s. Mm -hmm. uh, it's that 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 type of reaction is still important uh, today, without question. Okay, that's good. So given all of your responsibilities and accomplishments, how do you maintain a balanced life? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that I do. <laughs> okay. okay. But I, you know, maybe one thing I'll, I'll comment to that is my, in, uh, being an assistant professor is, is a lot of fun, right? I, I get to come in and, and essentially do whatever I want, you know, <laughs> and, but it's also difficult largely for that same reason, right? Is that sometimes you don't necessarily have direction. Um, and so early on in being an assistant professor, uh, since you don't have a lot of direction, a lot of people and myself included just think that the, the more I work, the better things are gonna get. Like if I just keep dedicating time, more time, more time, right? But we all have only a finite amount of time. There's only so many hours within a day. And so you often sacrifice other aspects of your life and trying to like dedicate everything to one specific cause. And in my case, it was, you know, being an assistant professor, trying to get tenure and advance in, in academia. Something that I've uh, come to appreciate over the years as I've uh, been in this job now, now nine years and progressed through tenure 
is, is having a balanced life is actually leads to more pro to, to greater productivity. Um, so, you know, early in my assistant professor days, I didn't necessarily exercise all that much. Um, I think I, I didn't spend as much time as I wanted perhaps with my, my family, especially my, my young children at that time. But now I exercise more, I spend a lot more time with my family and I feel like my productivity is actually uh, increased um, as, as a result of that. And so it's, it, it's, it's, it's hard to make that switch. And I, I, I completely understand it when assistant professors just say that they, they work a lot and they, to try and you know, advance the next step. But I, I don't think that has to be the way. I think you can achieve balance and, and one can be uh, uh, productive. And so I'm certainly trying to work to that. I'm not perfect, but um, it's something I've learned, uh, especially over the last several years. To, to have a, a balanced life leads to, more, to, to greater productivity. Yeah, that's very true. And one thing I've learned um, when it comes to balance, balance is perspective. Even though there is a general baseline for what you would consider to be balance, mm -hmm. balance many times is respective to the person in terms of what I'm working on and what I find when I'm able to rest doing and stuff like that. So yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. And like, you know, people have different interests, right? You know, they have different commitments in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's it, balance is not the same for everybody. Right. And exactly. As you, exactly. As you said. Yeah, that's very true. So how did you find or how are you seeking to find the right environment for you to thrive scientifically and intellectually? Um, I think having a collaborative environment is, is one thing that, that I try and strive for within my group. And, and as I mentioned before, I think a lot of that is through uh, students working together to achieve a common goal. And the, 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 and the, everyone has their individual research projects within the group, but we are working together as a unit to, to keep things moving forward. And, and, a, and a lot of sort of the, the, the overarching goal to keep a research lab running is is it's, a, it's unfortunate but it's true is that money is driving science right and so there are grant cycles that we do have to hit every five years or so and so everybody in the group is trying to produce uh you know really excellent uh research not, not only for their own careers and advancement of themselves and advancement of sort of the greater societal good of just developing interesting uh, reactions but also trying to develop things that are exciting enough to the broader synthetic, the broader organic chemistry community such that we can get another round of funding and continue um, what we're doing. So as I mentioned before, like having a collaborative environment, everyone working together towards a common goal, I think it's really important uh, to, 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 to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So synergy is important. Want that common, the common expression, the one plus one equals three. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, what were some of the highlights? If you had to list a few of the highlights, what were some of the highlights of you working with the chemistry Nobel laureate EJ Corey? What were some of your highlights? Um, you know, working with, with, with Professor Corey, some of the, the highlights really were um, uh, just talking to him about science. So he'd always come down to my lab, you know, every day or two and he would we just start talking about science and we wouldn't necessarily talk about the research that was going on um, at that very time within my fume hood but he'd often just sort of sit down at the desk next to me and just start talking about uh, some idea he had or just sort of wanted to get my input on something that he had, had read and he'd always sit down next to me and he'd have a the, this uh, uh, file just of papers and he'd always just sort of sit down and just start writing 
um, stuff. And we just sort of ch chat about whatever he wanted to talk about. And so um, I thought that was really exciting that he just wanted to talk about science and it was just about science fairly broadly um, as well. And so I've tried to take some of those types of ideas and actually translate that to uh, my, my current group and just trying to talk to my group about science as much as possible, you know, not necessarily about their project, but just sort of about um, things or, or topics in, in, in organic chemistry. Yeah, that's good. So I, I think it's really an enthusiasm for science is probably like the, the biggest thing I've taken away. I mean, Professor Corey is now 90 years old and he's still going strong. So it's, that's commendable. Yeah. So why did you choose chemistry as a field to major in? in your undergraduate and then later on? Why did you choose chemistry? So a, a lot of it comes down to uh, problem solving. I really like the idea of problem solving and, and I like trying to approach problems in a logical way. And I felt chemistry, uh, I could do that, right? I mean, we, we can't see molecules, but we certainly have a lot of ways to detect molecules. And um, I like being able to think about things in a molecular level and trying to devise solutions on, on, on that. I think that's really interesting. And organic chemistry in particular, I, I found to be really exciting uh, from a problem solving aspect of, of it. So that sort of started in my sophomore organic chemistry classes. I started to get into research uh, fairly early on as a uh, sophomore and junior and ultimately a senior. Um, and that really translated into uh, graduate school where I think my like love of organic chemistry really sort of hit in uh, first year of uh, uh, graduate school. And it was largely due to my, my mentor in uh, graduate school, Professor uh, Amir Hoveda. He, he really sort of um, was just super excited about science and that really was uh, inspiring to me and, and, and carried me forward. That's good. So if you had to give advice, some advice to those wanting to pursue the field you're currently studying in, what advice would you give if you had to give some advice. You know, I, I tell this to a lot of incoming graduate students, especially ones that come for like a recruiting weekend, is that you, you have to love chemistry, especially organic chemistry, to try and pursue a PhD in organic chemistry. It's this, uh, graduate school is, is difficult. Um, it's, and, and, it, and it should be, to, to, you know, because you're trying to achieve the, the highest degree that our field offers, right? It should be, a, a, you know, it should challenge you. Um, obviously, in a safe way, it should challenge you, but it should certainly challenge you. Um, and so the graduate school is, is very difficult, but it can also be a lot of fun. And the way it can be a lot of fun is that if you really just love what you're doing, if you come in every day and you're like, I really want to set up this reaction, or I want to try and solve this difficult problem, it's it's not that bad if you really if you really really like it. If you don't really like uh, uh, chemistry or organic chemistry specifically uh, in, in my field, then it's going to be really difficult. Coming in every day, setting up that reaction, it's just not going to be a lot of fun, and you're gonna and it's gonna and I I, I would not recommend it. So uh, graduate school is a choice that um, should not be made lightly. It's something where you should really sort of think 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 deeply about it before you get involved in it, and then. Once you realize that you're you're all in, then I think graduate school can be a lot of fun and enjoyable uh, ex experience. And, and it's not certainly something you have to appreciate um, on day one. Like you might think you really like chemistry, you show up to graduate school and you realize that maybe it's not for you. Maybe organic chemistry isn't something that you wanna spend the rest of your life doing. And that's totally fine as well. You don't have to. 
Um, there are plenty of other options for, for students, but the overarching thing, like the, the base thing that you need to do in order to like pursue a PhD in organic chemistry, in my opinion, is to, is to love uh, science and, and what you do. That's good. That's good. So as we wrap up, what has been some of the most beneficial advice you have received? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I think the thing that um, some of the most beneficial advice really is actually to be cautious of uh, unsolicited advice. Um, and what that really means is to sort of seek out your mentors uh, and, and trusted sources of advice. You know, in, in this community, and, and this probably attains to most fields as well, but you know, you can be casually talking to somebody about whatever it is you're talking about, but they can start listing all sorts of things that you should be doing. Um, but then if you talk to somebody else, they'll list you like all these other things that you should be doing, right? And it's, it's very uh, difficult to sort of like please all those people because they can often have conflicting advices and it can just be very difficult. So I think it's really important to sort of seek out your mentors, ask for specific points of advice and then try and act on those if you think those are, are important. But the, the overarching idea here is that just sort of be cautious about like trying to listen to everybody and trying to get advice from everybody I think can be uh, uh, somewhat dangerous um, uh, in, in my opinion. Yes, I agree because, you know, as I think back, um, one of my relatives would say they, hear, they listen to people's advice, but they take what's in it for them. So they take the portion of advice that's related to what they need to or what they agree with based on their understanding and their situation. So yeah. there are a whole list of parameters or a litany of factors that you go through. Of course, you want to make sure you hear people out and understand their perspective, but you want to make sure what they say is related to what you're going through. Yeah, exactly. And I especially learned this in being an assistant professor. Like, you talk to 10 different people, they'll give you 10 different ways in which you can sort of proceed through being an assistant professor and like you know maybe only one of those pertains to sort of your style of doing research so there are many ways to achieve success in a field many many ways like and so you kind of have to find your own way and, and seek out the people that um, you think can give you trusted uh, good advice that is specific uh, to, to your needs um, yeah that's good that's good well thank you dr brown thanks for coming on the show it's Thanks much appreciated. It's much appreciated. Welcome to the new chemists. We're glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Here on the new chemists, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change as well as careers, community, research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is Dr. Lewis N. Jungheim. Thanks for joining me today. It is good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Dr. Lewis N. Jungheim is a retired research fellow. He is the owner of LNJ Consulting, in which his primary focus is the critical evaluation of potential in-license opportunities for big pharma clients. He is an affiliate associate professor of medicinal chemistry at Roosevelt University School of Pharmacy in Chicago, and he has served as a member of the Departmental Advisory Council and taught the medicinal chemistry of antibacterials. He is the former president of the Inuit Art Society. 
He was a medicinal chemistry consultant to the NTB Now Initiative via Lilly's connection to the World Health Organization and the William and Melinda Gates Foundation. He is an accomplished inventor with 31 plus years of medicinal chemistry experience at Eli Lilly and Co. in infectious diseases, including antibacterials, antivirals, and antifungals. His medicinal chemistry experience includes oncology, neuropeptide receptors for neuroscience and endocrinology, and he has also served as the inventor of the NK1 antagonist tridipitant. He was an NIH NCI postdoctoral fellow from 1979 to 1981 at the University of Rochester, New York, serving in Andrew Kennedy's research group. He earned his PhD in 1979 at the University of Wisconsin-Madison at ba in Bari Trosis Research Group. He earned his BA in 1975 at Northwestern University at Evanston, Illinois. In 1992, he was elected the chair of the Garden Research Conference on Heterocyclic Compounds, and he has served as an ad hoc member at the NIH Study Section in Drug Discovery and Development. Highlights while at Lilly, he has served, he served as the epigenetics platform chair, invented and developed small molecules that facilitate the oral uptake of therapeutic proteins. He was a member of the team that invented three clinical candidate, three clinical candidate growth hormone secretagogues for the treatment of frailty. He developed potent and selective inhibitors of MRP-1 transporters. He invented the first non-peptide-based inhibitors of rhinovirus protease. He was a member of the Lilly Argoron team that discovered Viracept, which is otherwise known as Nelfinavir mesylate for the treatment of HIV AIDS. He invented novel cephalosporin-based prodrugs for the specific delivery of cytotoxic agents like vinca, alkaloids, and doxorubicin by tumor-specific conjugates. He invented the first potent broad-spectrum antibacterial non-beta-lactam inhibitors of penicillin-binding proteins. So these are just a few of his accomplishments. However, Lou is an accomplished medicinal chemist. Please welcome Lou John. Hey Lou, thanks for joining me today. It's good to have you here. Good to see you again, David. Yep. Um, so um it you have worked in work as a postdoctoral fellow, or got your PhD from the University of Wisconsin Madison. You have uh, served as a research fellow in many ways. Um, what have been your longstanding interest in the field of science? I guess, you know, first of all, let's start with, I was always good at math okay. Okay. In, in school and my dad was an electrical engineer. Okay. And so I think I always had a scientific bent. And, and while, um, Let's say in Catholic school, science wasn't exactly the uh, preeminent class. By the time I got to high school, I think I really loved my science classes the best right. and had just a terrific um, chemistry teacher in high school, too, which really kind of got me down that path. Right. So, okay, so it, you, would you say it was a chemistry teacher that kind of encouraged you and inspired you to chemistry as a undergraduate yeah absolutely i think that was kind of my favorite science okay okay that's good 
So, um, in terms of uh, again chemistry, what has been your focus? What was your focus primarily? Well, my focus primarily was synthesis, making molecules. Okay. Um, but as I got into my career, and I think part of the reason that I got into making molecules originally uh, was because I think as an undergraduate, I, re I really developed an interest in why do medicines work and understanding that these were organic molecules that did things in your body that were of great benefit. And I think part of that was my junior year in college, I actually had an infection in my leg. Hey, and and the doctor told me that if they didn't find an antibiotic that worked, they might have to cut off my leg. And so I think that was really kind of the, the, the beginning of my interest in why do organic molecules potentially do what they do in the human body. Wow. Oh, that's an interesting story. So, um, so, so would you say, uh, so your research was primarily focused on organic synthesis. That's good. So given all of your accomplishments, um, how do you maintain view of the bigger picture in your career and in your life in general? For me, that's actually been very easy, David. Um, okay. First of all, I think a lot of my colleagues always considered me to be potentially not a completely serious scientist. Okay. Part of that was um, I actually, as an undergraduate, financed my education at, as an athlete mm -hmm. and, and you know, played all through college and, and progressed through playing semi-pro baseball in the Chicago area mm -hmm. um, in, in my youth. Um, I've always had active interest in photography creative things and organic synthesis is certainly um, a creative thing. Um, I love music uh, and, 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 and travel and so on. So I've always had, and motor racing actually has, has been a fascinating thing. And part of that is because of my siblings. Okay. I've got a brother who's a mechanical engineer who actually works in the auto racing industry. Okay. So, in, and in fact, that kind of drove me to Indianapolis, where the Speedway is and the Indy 500 and so on. But it was also the best job offer that I got okay. as well. So it was it was really um, a, a wonderful thing. Now, in terms of my career, that's also been very easy because drug discovery, hunting, medicinal chemistry is so multidisciplinary. Okay. That you really have to work with teams. Uh, people that are, are just as good at their own branch of science as you are at, at your ability to make molecules. And so I'm talking about experts in various fields of biology, pharmacology, mm -hmm. um, pharmacokinetics, toxicology, mm -hmm. and, and then even with physicians who are expert in, in the medical field for any particular disease that you're trying to target. Okay. And, and so you really, you don't become an expert, but you have to become conversant in all of these different branches of science in, in order to, to really be um, an active participant in, in a team effort. Wow. No, but you have, you, you have to be the guy, and, and that's the cool thing about the medicinal chemistry. Mm -hmm. The whole thing starts with an experimental molecule. Okay. That, that the biologists start working with and, and you start refining. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Becoming conversant to be an active participant. That's good. 
Um, so, how have you been adaptive and creative in the field of science? What what area, which niche would you say you have uh, complement to adding a layer of creativity or adapting a concept in a new way? Well, that's easy because I've worked on so many different things. Okay. And I started out working on antibiotics. Okay. And, and maybe one of the most, well, I think I've done a number of creative things. Okay. Um, the very first project that I worked on at, at Lilly, um, mm-hmm. Lilly at the time was known as an antibiotics house. Okay. And, and kind of the, the, the game of penicillin cephalosporin type antibiotics was drawing to a close and there was the sense that really new things were needed. Okay. And and in actually in a collaboration um, with Edward C. Taylor, who was a, a professor at Princeton at the time, mm-hmm. uh, has subsequently passed away, but still a dear friend of mine. Okay. He, he had an idea where he was making square rings, four-membered rings with two nitrogens and a carbonyl to, okay. to mimic the beta-lactam, which only had one nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Those turned out to be totally unworkable in terms of chemical stability. Oh, okay. And and at the time, my first project was actually to try and, and make bake basically a backwards penicillin. Okay. So put the lactam in the five-membered ring and really kind of squish it down with the four-membered ring attached to it. Hmm. And and Ted kind of inspired the idea of actually putting a five-membered ring with two nitrogens in it. Wow. And those turned into a whole field of uh, bicyclic pyrazolidinones. Wow. That, that turned out to be very effective mimics of penicillins and cephalosporins and quite potent. Wow. And 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 so these actually acted as beta-lactams, but weren't beta-lactams. I, I think maybe though my most interesting idea came later on in when we were working on AIDS. Right. And, it, and it turns out that this is where I first became um, exposed to a fellow named Anthony Fauci, who's been in the news of late, right. because he was kind of, of running and, and leading the way in, in fighting the world of HIV AIDS. Mm-hmm. And, and I was part of a team that invented a compound called nelfinavir, which is an HIV protease inhibitor. And at one point in time was actually the top selling HIV protease inhibitor on the market. Wow. And the idea there was the, the molecule that kind of led the way came originally from Hoffman LaRoche. Right. And there was some, and, and also this was at a, a, a really exciting time because this was really when molecular modeling, x-ray crystallography and, and quote unquote rational drug design was really coming into its fore. Mm-hmm. And there was the understanding that part of the molecule that Roche had, had a, a piece, a glutamine, in what they called the P2 pocket. Right. And the mantra from Roche was that the only thing that worked in the P2 pocket was glutamine. Okay. And that was the kind of thing that sort of challenged me intellectually when people would say something that couldn't be done. So not unlike you couldn't replace the beta-lactam in a penicillin or a cephalosporin with something other than a beta-lactam, which I had already done, okay. I started playing with this region of the molecule. And what I did was actually inverted the stereochemistry of the glutamine. Okay. And so instead of using an L amino acid glutamine, I started making D amino acids. Okay. Where I put a moiety that could mimic the glutamine into the pocket where the glutamine was going mm-hmm. and, and the tail out into the rest. Okay. 
And so by having an unnatural amino acid, this really impacted um, the chemical stability of the molecules because they were much less metabolically labile. And as we gained an understanding of, of taking natural amino acids out of a molecule, the glutamine was actually something that was really hindering oral uptake. And that kind of became the holy grail for the HIV compounds, and in particular, the protease inhibitors. Wow. Um, was getting hydrogen bonding moieties and other such things out of the molecules. And it was working there and showing that these things could make very potent and better oral uptake molecules wow. that got the whole rest of the team working in that region. And, and ultimately those ideas led to um, an even greater simplification in the molecule that became nelfinavir and, and ultimately a compound that impacted um, the, the lives of, of AIDS patients. And I'm very proud of that. Wow, that's, that's good. That's good. That was that was very. Uh, that's good. You know, I think you can dissect that some more, but we'll continue. That, that was good. And, and these things are all published too. So that's true. That's true. People can look them up. Yeah. So, um, how did you seek or find the right environment for you to thrive scientifically and intellectually? And what I mean by that is, you know, you went to Northwestern. You went to University of Wisconsin Madison. You are NIH NCI postdoctoral fellow at the University of Rochester, New York. You have spent a lot of time in medicinal chemistry. So obviously, in some way, shape, or form, you've had some success and you've thrived scientifically and intellectually. How did you find the right environment for you to do that? You know, it's interesting. I did a lot of soul searching my third year, or at the end of my third year as an undergraduate. Okay. Because by then I had finished basically all the coursework required for the degree. And I, I kind of spent a good part of actually my junior year thinking very hard about what I enjoyed most about chemistry. Right. And given some of my other interests, like as a boy, I built a lot of plastic models mm. and I joined, you know, working with my hands, okay. other such things. So it had to be a laboratory science. And then I look back and it was just or, organic seemed to be the best match for me and also kind of the chemistry that fit. Also by then, and that was the time when I really had the I had the infection in my leg that almost ended my baseball career. Wow. I ended up actually having my best season ever my junior year right after recovering from that infection. Wow. And and sought um, the guidance of actually Professor J.A. Marshall at the time, who was the best synthetic organic chemist at Northwestern at the time. Wow. And, and as an advisor, he agreed to take me on um, to do my undergraduate research project for my senior year. Mm-hmm. But it was in talking to him and, and my saying that basically I kind of got involved in the, the thought process of, you know, why do molecules work and so on. And that's where he said the beginning step there was really becoming the best synthetic chemist you can. Mm-hmm. And that's what pointed me um, to synthetic groups. Mm-hmm. And that led me to Wisconsin and working for Barry Trost, which I'm sure is a name that you know in synthetic organic chemistry. From there, um, it, it became clear that the place to do the kinds of things that I wanted to do was in the pharmaceutical industry. And that, that led me ultimately to Andy Kendi's group. Right. Because and Andy had actually been a prominent medicinal chemist 
um, in the pharmaceutical industry before he left the industry to go into his academic career. Okay. And, and he offered me the opportunity to work on a molecule called Taxol. Oh, wow. You worked on Taxol. In fact, I was the first person to put the tricyclic ring system together, and that was my NIH proposal. Wow. You worked on Taxol. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And, 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 and so it was the combination of Andy's recommendations, Barry's recommendation, and the relationship to Jim Marshall mm -hmm. um, that, that ultimately got me all of the job interviews that I really would have wanted to have. I got to interview for the big companies. And then being a Midwesterner, it was really great for me to be able to relocate to Indianapolis mm -hmm. um, and, and be near family in Chicago. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. Yeah, that's good. So um, given all your responsibilities and accomplishments, especially when you were busy uh, in terms of working as a postdoctoral fellow, working at Eli Lilly, um, how did you maintain a balanced life or how did you try to maintain a balanced life? Well, first of all, I had interests. Okay. All right. So motor racing and boy, I moved to Indianapolis where in, in, you know, there's a couple weeks in the month of May where you can really take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. I'm an avid golfer. Okay. There are a lot of good golf courses around here. Mm -hmm. You can do photography anywhere. Okay. But, but you come back to work, and I think part of the reason that I managed to be able to be productive, creative, and so on, is because I had outlets for blowing off steam. Okay, that's good. You know, I, I could take a day, you know, and do something else. Okay. And so even, even though um, your, your mind is kind of always working, you know, your head never shuts off. Yeah, that's true. In a lot of ways, you're always thinking about how to make this molecule and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I guess another point I would make is something that really contributed to my success was being a really good synthetic chemist. Mm -hmm. There was no molecule that ever intimidated me in terms of trying to make it. And so I was always willing to try crazy ideas because we could usually find ways to make pretty exotic molecules to try wacky ideas. Okay. And, and understanding that, that in medicinal chemistry, if you've not made something that's never been done before, mm -hmm. there's no getting a patent and therefore there's no getting a drug. Okay. <laughs> and that's part of it too. But I think an, another side of it, and it's something that really got drummed into the heads of the people that worked for Barry Trost was the importance of participating in the scientific community. Right. And so it was always when you can publish, when you can go to meetings, go. And, and I think part of the interdisciplinary approach of medicinal chemistry and so on was, and, and of course you had the budget when you're working in industry to go to meetings that one kept you up with chemistry as a science, mm -hmm. but two also helped you get much more acquainted and deeper into the various biological aspects of the particular kind of problem you were working on at the time. Mm -hmm. And, and to network, network, network mm -hmm. with people that worked at other companies right. or other academicians who were working in the field. And that was really a networking is just absolutely critical, not only within your company, but I think also the experts outside. And so I have lots of friends who worked at all kinds, you know, at all the other big pharma companies. Right. Yeah, so that's good. So, um, 
in terms of your success, what would you say has been like the main contributor or guiding factor or guiding philosophy for your success as a uh, graduate student, as a postdoctoral fellow, as a medicinal chemist in general? What would you say has complemented most the most to your success? My father used to preach to me as a kid, find something that you enjoy doing because you're going to be doing it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so seeking guidance, seeking mentoring really mattered. But I would say the guiding principle through my whole career has been, and it's all, it's, it made me happy through the whole thing. You, you have a lot of opportunities to go in different directions Mm -hmm. in life as a chemist. Mm -hmm. The guiding principle for me is stick to what you're good at. Yeah, that's true. Even, even if there are other avenues, let's say like management, where you might make more money or maybe have more power mm-hmm. um, or things like that. It was mm-hmm. for, for me sticking to what I thought I did best okay. is is really what has kept me happy, productive, creative and, and successful. Okay. Wow, that's good. Sticking to what you know, sticking to your guns. Yeah. Yeah. Because so. because it's not it's not like um, not like I ever wanted for for um, money, excitement, fame, and, and wonderfully interesting things to do and great people to work with mm-hmm. by, by s- sticking to being a scientist. Yeah, that's true. Sticking to what you're good at. So how did you maintain vision and teamwork in your environment? You worked in, you worked at, as a postdoctoral fellow, I take it you worked in the team, with a team of people, not by yourself. And, and with many, many different teams on many, many different kinds of diseases. And that was one of the great things um, about it because it got to the point where because you were a good team player, other people sought you out to help with their projects. Mm-hmm. And so people, people were happy to have me join their efforts. And I think a, a big part of that was communicating with your coworkers giving them latitude okay. letting that letting them pursue their ideas as, as long as they continue to be successful and I, and I also think um, really respecting and listening to the experts when another member of the team is the expert at, at the moment for what they're talking about okay. and, and then supporting and, and standing by, um, you know their their feedback and their guidance, especially if you're the team leader. Okay. You know when 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 there's not good news, you've got to stand up and say, as much as I wish, you know, that we were where you know meeting the milestone or whatever where we are now, we just can't because of these data. And and a lot of that is just encourage the team to follow the data. It's a lot like what's going on in the world right now with the virus. Listen listen to the science. Yeah, that's true. Follow the science. Yeah. So, um, in terms of advice, do you have any advice for those wanting to become medicinal chemists, wanting to serve in industry and eventually in academia? Uh, what, what advice would you give to people who are either in the undergraduate years or graduate years? What advice would you give to them? Well, as an undergraduate, I would say do a lot of soul searching regarding what area of science interests you the most. Okay. Because there are so many different directions that you can go. Mm-hmm. Um, be careful how you choose where you go to graduate school. 
Okay, what do you mean and, by that? Um, be sure that where you go is going to give you the best possible exposure in the field you want to pursue. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's there's a lot of things about, you know, maybe, you know, somebody wants to go to Harvard or Princeton or, or wherever, but that isn't necessarily where the best person or, or really good people in your field are practicing that science. That's true. Right? Yeah, and, true. And, and so you really, you want to go somewhere where you will be able to get the best exposure um, and, and really good training in what you want to do. That's true. And then I think beyond that, the, 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 again, the big thing is network, network, network. Mm -hmm. Take advantage of the people that are around you in graduate school. I mean, one of the great things about working in, in at University of Wisconsin and in a group like Barry Trost was I've got friends all over the world now. Yeah, that's true. Because of people that I went to school with. And then network, network, network. Seek, seek mentoring and... Uh, by by participating in the scientific community, you end up meeting people in your field that work at other companies too, mm -hmm. and and those can be tremendous assets to you as you go through life. I mean, I was constantly getting calls by headhunters because of my contacts with other people, wow, that's good. and 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 so on. And so I always had plenty of other opportunities, but none of them ever looked better. I got really lucky and ended up in the perfect place for me right from the get-go. Oh, wow, that's good. That's good. But so, I always had the chance to do other things, um, wow. again, because of the networking that I had done and the, and the friends that I had made externally. Mm -hmm. And that's both in academics and in... Um, and in um, industry. industry, and and it led to other opportunities. Like for five years, I actually consulted for the National Institutes of Health, wow. participating in a study section because of the reputation that I had developed. Um, actually, both from people in academics and and in industry. Wow, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So, um, what has been some of the most beneficial advice you have received? As uh, as an undergraduate graduate, with whatever area of your career you received the best advice, um, I think I got advice? terrific advice, kind of every step of the way. That's good. You know, as I said, you know, Jim Jim Marshall, who's unfortunately no longer with us, um, he he really pointed me in the right direction of the the way to understand best about what he heard me saying regarding human medicine, mm -hmm. understanding molecules and so on, the way to get into that was through the portal of synthetic organic chemistry right. and becoming the best synthetic organic chemist that I could be. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, the best synthetic organic chemist that you can be were the people that Big Pharma were hiring okay. to go into both either process chemistry or to drug invention mm -hmm. and and for a long time i thought you know I, I might end up as a process chemist okay you know learning how to most efficiently make new drug molecules mm -hmm. but i ended up for whatever reason and i think it may be because of the recommendations that i got um from trost and from andy kendi and so on that the best fit for me was actually in drug invention okay uh but again 
you know, with Trost, it was, of course, get your nose to the grindstone. Mm -hmm. Be a participant in the scientific community when you have the opportunity mm -hmm. and network, network, network. Okay. And then with Andy, it was a lot of it was keep going, be creative and publish every chance you get. Okay. You know, and, and, and a lot of that can be even when you have a chance to, you know, go to a meeting and give a poster. Okay. You know? Good. It's good. Yeah. So, Luman, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Um, this was it was good to talk with you. You too, David. Welcome to the New Chemist Podcast. Bienvenidos al podcast del Nuevo Químico. Carlos Irza, esto podcast tu New Chemist. Welcome by the podcast van the New Chemist. Bienvenue sur le podcast du Nouveau Chimiste. Bem-vindo ao podcast do Novo Químico. Welcome to the New Chemist Podcast. Work hard. Be value-driven. You can do it. You can grow and learn it. You can be the difference you and your community needs. Don't give up. We are here rooting and cheering for you. Don't give up. Travaillez dur. Soyez axé sur la valeur. Tu peux le faire. Vous pouvez grandir et l'apprendre. Vous pouvez être la différence dont vous et votre communauté avez besoin. N'abandonnez pas. Nous sommes ici pour vous encourager et vous encourager. N'abandonnez pas. Trabalhar duro. Seja orientado por valores. Você consegue. Você pode crescer e aprender. Você pode ser a diferença que você e sua comunidade precisam. Não desista. Estamos aqui torcendo e torcendo por você. Não desista. Duepses clirá. Na ovigites tin axia. Boris na tocanis. Μπορείτε να μεγαλώσετε και να το μάθετε. Μπορείτε να είστε η διαφορά που χρειάζεστε εσείς και η κοινότητά σας. Μην τα παρατάς. Είμαστε εδώ για να σας ζητοκραυγάσουμε. Μην τα παρατάς. Τραβάχα δούρο. Σέα impulsado por el valor. Puedes hacerlo. Puedes crecer y aprenderlo. 
Usted puede ser la diferencia que usted y su comunidad necesitan. No te rindas estamos aquí animándote y animándote. No te rindas. Werk hard. Wees waardig gedreven. Je kunt het. Je kunt groeien en leren. U kunt het verschil zijn dat u en uw gemeenschap nodig hebben. Geef niet op. We zijn hier om voor je te roten en te juichen. Geef niet op. Work hard. Be value driven. You can do it. You can grow and learn it. You can be the difference you and your community needs. Don't give up. We are here rooting and cheering for you. Don't give up. Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is the new chemist where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening. Note, the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I.